Uh, the pandemic comes along and nonprofits are forced to examine everything they do uh, and examine it in such a way that, you know, things they've been doing for years and years and years and can no longer afford to do. And basically are taking very hard looks at their funding models, at what they do. And along the way, they are also developing a tremendous sense of teamwork. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by David O'Brien and Matthew Craig. They're the co-writers of the brand new book, Building Smart Nonprofits, a roadmap for mission success. During our conversation, we dig into the research that they did for the book, where they examined alternative models for funding that nonprofits could leverage that are simply just better uses of the IP or the unique qualifications that each nonprofit has. This conversation is wide ranging and covers a lot of contrarian topics in our space. Everything from how do we restructure our operating models? How do we explore new funding models beyond galas, golf tournaments, grants, and major gifts? They've also talked about, are there too many nonprofits? And maybe consolidation is a good answer. This conversation is insightful, and you'll definitely pick that up from David and Matt's passion, but also critique but optimism as they move forward. This is a brilliant conversation, so let's dive in. David and Matthew, I'm excited to bring you guys together and have a conversation with you today because you wrote this new book called Building Smart Nonprofits. And this book came out in the year of 2020 where organizations are you know, just trying to stay afloat and uh, are trying to navigate various challenges that they're overcoming. And what I found interesting about this book is it does lay out a groundwork to help organizations ask different questions and even explore maybe things that were assumed that they could reimagine. And I want to get into that. But before we do, I want to know who you are and why you even wrote this book or felt kind of obligated to put something out like this. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more on what journey you took to getting to this book. Well, um, this is David. I, first of all, thank you for having us on and for the good work you're doing. After a 40-year career in finance, uh, I decided that I really wanted to start giving back uh, to, to the world, maybe to make up for some of the bad things I did when I was in finance. But I decided I would, uh, my way of doing that would be to serve on a number of boards of directors of nonprofits. Uh, and I did that on a series of boards ranging from human services to museums and arts and culture and so forth, really covering the gamut. And along the way, I realized a couple things. One, that I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, and frankly, uh, you're dealing, in many cases, you're dealing with people's lives. And uh, the thought came to me, geez, maybe you should get some education in what you're doing. Um, so I went back to school to uh, get a second master's degree. My first one was an MBA about 40 years ago. And in, it was in nonprofit leadership. And along that, with that, I met a lot of really exciting young people who were, unlike the world I grew up in, where you just wanted to go to, to uh, Wall Street and make money and then give back by writing checks to nonprofits, they were young people who really wanted to be in the industry because they wanted to make the world a better place. So that really excited me. And the other was, I had a sense of frustration. Frustration was that uh, people who, well-meaning people who are in nonprofits, 
uh, had to suffer uh, with uh, funding issues, always worrying about where the next uh, funding was going to come from, uh, chasing grants that some, ta- some cases weren't meaningful, not being able to pay their people appropriate salaries uh, or have the best equipment and so forth. Uh, so that sense of frustration, uh, as well as uh, the, that second education, led me to say, there's a better way of doing this. Um, and that's really what re- uh, led to the book. Uh, along the way, I realized I wanted to have someone with me who uh, was born with an iPhone in his hand, um, and uh, that was uh, my good friend Matt Craig, so I convinced him, who, and Matt will tell you he's a leader in nonprofit finance, uh, to come along with us. And I think he's forgiven me because it was uh, more than he bargained for, uh, but that's kind of how we, how we uh, got to the book. I appreciate Matt? you sharing that. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, the iPhone carrying newborn. Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure it's uh, quite that way. I think I was born with maybe a cordless phone in my hand. I don't even know if they had those <laughs> yet. Um, definitely not an iPhone. That came along much later. But uh, uh, thank you again, uh, Noah, echoing David's uh, sentiment for having us on. We appreciate it. Um, my journey it was a little more perhaps uh, circuitous. Um, I was supposed to be an astronaut. I went to uh, university and studied astronautical and aeronautical engineering. And uh, at some point along the way, a couple of years in, um, I got smacked with a bolt of reality. And that was that astronauts have day jobs. They don't just uh, travel into space seven days a week. They actually have to well, they do something. I'm not quite sure what it was because I'm not an astronaut. And at that point, um, I was a little disappointed and didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I took a smattering of courses uh, at the university where I uh, was enrolled and uh, gravitated toward business, um, which is a general course of study. But um, I ended up uh, in finance. And as I started my career, I uh, began to volunteer for a number of uh, nonprofits in Chicago where I was living at the time. And and one of those organizations was called the Tax Assistance Program. It was a tiny organization that was born out of a very simple idea, which was that uh, um, uh, low and moderate income families a lot of times don't file tax returns because they don't have the, uh, the acumen or the money to hire a third party to do that for them. And so they don't file and they're leaving tax credits and, and, and sometimes large refunds on the table. So this organization started and, and brought in volunteers like me to uh, work with these families to fill out very, very simple, you know, two-page tax returns and get these families back um, a lot of money that they could use for food, rent, medicine, you name it. Um, and I remember thinking, my goodness, this is a tiny organization with a shoestring budget, and it's having such a powerfully profound impact on people, uh, people that are sitting right across the table from us literally. Uh, And that really is what kind of sparked the uh, interest in the sector. Fast forward a number of years, and uh, I I went to a state of nonprofits conference here in San Diego that's put on by the University of San Diego. And that's really just a, as it sounds, a state of the sector where they talk about what's going on and how organizations are are dealing with uh, resource constraints and, you know, just the the realities of, of life on the ground as a nonprofit. And I just remember being struck then by a particular fact, which was that there's over 10,000 organizations here locally in, in San Diego alone. And I, I thought, my goodness, there aren't that many problems to solve. So <laughs> there's got to be a lot of overlap. And I just 
thought, how is it that some organizations are thriving while others struggle mightily just to keep the lights on, even though they're, they're often trying to tackle the, the same societal problems? And that's what, in part, as David mentioned, led us to seek answers from those in the sector that are operating at a really, really high level. And that uh, was the genesis of, of the book, Building Smart Nonprofits. Well, David and Matt, I appreciate you kind of giving that quick overview to set the stage for us. And, and I want to get right into it, because in the introduction of your book, you take a direct stab at golf tournaments, galas, grants, and major gifts. Like you kind of just take an ax to it and say, hey, why is this the way? Uh, can you share more about that? What is the ax to grind with these traditional fundraising models that you kind of call out front and center at the beginning of the book? Well, our original, our original title for the book was Requiem for the Gala. Uh, and our publisher thought it was a little too snarky, but we thought it was representative of the way we felt. And it's meant that, and we have nothing against galas. You know, I've been to many of them. I love them. They're great. But they're really friend raisers, not fundraisers. Uh, and the issue is that what we saw is so many organizations would basically struggle to put the, first of all, uh, most nonprofits are short-staffed to start with. And then along comes the annual gala or golf outing, and you spend so much time, the staff really can't do their day jobs uh, because they're focused on the annual event, uh, which is clear. And many of them, frankly, don't make all that much money. There's one organization we, we learned about, I think it's the Robin Hood Foundation, which I think raises $100 million a year at their annual gala or something like that. But believe me, those are few and far between. Uh, but what we're trying to say there is that um, there is a better way to fund nonprofits uh, and not rely on uh, chasing the latest donor. And in our research, what we found, there are a number of practices that are really changing the environment. And those that we found that were very, very successful really started with a concept of uh, what we call matching money with mission. And that means that Many of these organizations truly have uh, great intellectual property. Uh, they don't think of it as intellectual property. They think of it as, as uh, something else, but it truly is. Intellectual property means something coming from the mind, and many of them have wonderful property in how to do things. That how to do things is intellectual property that can be monetized, monetized in such a way that they can then... Um, determine and receive sustainable sources of revenue. A couple examples um, very quickly, and I'll give Matt a chance. Um, we looked at a, num a couple organizations uh, in San Diego. Uh, one was an organization called AVID, AVID, A-V-I-D, Advanced Program. Uh, the, the acronym will come to me. Um, but it's a, it was started by a high school teacher uh, to help uh, free lunch children uh, uh, prepare to enter college. Today, it's a probably a $40 million organization, and it's in, I think, 40 states and has millions of students. Um, and the, the way they did it is they took their know-how uh, and turned it into a line item on the state budget for professional development. So uh, they were able to generate recurring sources of revenue and build their organization. Another example is a, a totally different organization here in San Diego. It's called the USS Midway Museum. Now, uh, what they are, they took an old battleship, an old uh, warship, uh, and brought it um, to, San, to San Diego Bay. Uh, but what they did is years before they actually received the ship, they looked at 
what they were trying to do. And they looked around the country and they found uh, there are many, many uh, old ship museums around the country, and most of them were losing money. Uh, and they came to the conclusion that they needed a, a funding model, uh, which would uh, give them uh, recurring sources of revenue. And they basically are running a a Disney World uh, tourist organ- type organization where they are generating $40 million a year in revenue. It's uh, consistently one of the top five attractions in the United States on TripAdvisor. Uh, and they're looking at it as uh, they're, they're running a tourist de- de- destination in order to fund their, their mission, which, which is to keep the spirit of Midway, USS Midway, alive as a symbol of enduring freedom. And they generate $40 million a year in revenue and something around $10 million in net income. They even have their own foundation, um, which they use to subsidize other nonprofits. So those are two examples. I can give you many more of where they are not, they're looking at a funding model which provides, uses their special sauce to create recurring sources of revenue. They still have galas, and that's great, but that's not what they rely on for funding. Yeah, that's a, a good summary and uh, avid advancement via individual determination. Um, that's a great example of one of the organizations here that, that has really monetized their intellectual property, as David said. And, and again, to echo uh, the sentiment that he closed on, it, it's not that we're advocating for uh, you know, galas and golf outings and the like to go away. It's just that we think that Listen, everybody's got the same 24 hours in the day. We're all running hard organizations. They're leaders, board members. They're, they're doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. So it's a question of efficiency and, and how best to use those tools and resources to make sure they create a sustainable organization. You know, is uh, reliance on a gala or, or otherwise, uh, uh, you know, but using that event or venue as the primary fundraiser uh, or a source of funding for your organization? Is that a prudent use of the the human capital that you have within your organization? Maybe, but often it isn't. And and so what we we really advocate for is a reset of of the way of thinking of these organizations as, um, or rather as these uh, events as uh, storytelling venues as ways to uh, bring in stakeholders, convene stakeholders, and thank them for what they do. As David said, they're friend raisers, not fundraisers. You may make some money, and that's certainly great. But really, I think there's a missed opportunity if you don't recognize the, the power of convening a group of stakeholders within your organization to create stories that will help create a, a cadre of brand ambassadors that can go out into the world and you know tell others, recruit others to your mission, tell people, what your organization is about. Um, Really, these stories are the connective tissue that bring your communities, funders, and and beneficiaries together, and they they unite them uh, with your your cause and your vision. It's all part of a a virtuous cycle, which is that the more insight you have into the impact of your programs through the collection of data, the the better storytelling you'll be able to do, uh, which leads to greater and more diverse funding streams. And that's the the ultimate goal, is to create sustainable, diverse funding streams that'll keep your organization in, in business and allow it to continue the good work that it's doing. Um, you know, the, the other thing, too, to point out about, about galas is, 
you know, these organizations are often put on as, as fundraisers, as we've talked about, where people are walking around. I've been to many. David's been to many. No, I'm sure you've been to many where you, you kind of feel like you got a dollar sign on your back because often you do. And, and what we think is perhaps a better reframing of those organizations is not something that's put on to get something from me, but rather that's an event which is put on for me to thank me as a benefactor or somebody who's, who's intimately and uniquely involved in that organization. What that does is it activates the principle of reciprocity. Well, this is an organization that really values what I do for them, and they want to thank me for it and, and cultivate stronger relationships with me for it and understand what my motivations are for being connected to that organization, which really re requires not only storytelling, but what we've uh, come to know is, is story listening listening to others and, and people within your organization and outside of it and understanding really what their motivations are so that you can develop stronger relationships with them. Yeah. And I think what you all are talking about is like leveraging, you know, resources. And I, and I think how you described it in the book was kind of like, how, how do you deploy financial and human resources or how do you leverage those well? And is golf gala grant applications, et cetera, the best leverage of those resources to ultimately, you know, drive the good forward. And so I think you all shared some great examples and really made a case for why this type of maybe uh, contrarian thinking about how we fund our mission can drive success. But for those listening that are like, like they're kind of turned upside down a little bit, not because they're attached to golf and galas. I think there's much socialization on how these are ineffective tactics or maybe not the best leverage um, of resources. But now you've just flipped it to, hey, we're running a Disney world to fund our mission. Can you help kind of uh, demystify and, and even begin with some of the first steps or uh, strategies that someone might think through as they try to apply what you just suggested to their mission and their work that they're doing? What are the first steps or kind of process they should go through to identify the opportunities that may exist for alternative funding? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head is why do they exist? Uh, and um, what do they really do well? What is their secret sauce? Uh, as Matt mentioned, um, you know, we have 10,000 nonprofit organizations uh, in San Diego. Um, and, why do they have to do everything themselves, first of all? What is their specialty? Uh, and how can they collaborate with others so that they can do what they do well, uh, what they can do the best, uh, and work with others who can augment what they're doing with what they do best? Um, it's sort of, again, use the word virtuous ecosystem, um, is what we found uh, when we went out and spoke to people across the country, is that uh, there's a growing trend. And even for funders, funders are, are certainly happy to, to pay for, uh, make grants for organizations to, to uh, investigate collaboration. Now, collaboration can take a lot of different forms. Um, it could be merger and acquisition, which tends to scare people, but way, uh, or it could be simply working together uh, where they can... Uh, uh, pool their collective resources and, again, use the word leverage, leverage what they do. So I think that's the, the first first item. A uh, small example, we looked at an organization in Denver. It's called Work Now. Work Now is a collaboration of 20 
uh, organizations uh, in Denver, uh, and it's designed to to its goal is to educate and place young people, uh, people who are currently working in dead end minimum wage jobs, uh, in putting them job, giving them jobs in the construction industry, uh, where they can earn two and three times minimum wage. Um, it was funded by a one million dollar seed capital grant from the Denver Foundation. Uh, and 20 organizations came together and each contributing their own secret sauce. So if I'm a young man and I'm uh, in a dead-end job in Denver uh, and I need, I can't go to get training because I don't have a car, I don't have transportation, well, they provide transportation. If I need uh, daycare, another member of the group uh, provides daycare. Uh, I need tools, um, uh, construction tools, another group provides that. And in a year... Uh, they did two things. They, put, they placed 200 people in uh, well-funded, well-paying jobs, and they also became a self-sustaining organization. So the Denver Foundation's seed capital uh, became uh, the seed for them to grow their organization to the point where it's now self-sustaining. So I think that's a good example. Uh, focus on what you do the best, and then collectively, how can we... How can we um, together uh, solve solve these problems. I think that's so interesting too, because like just to give some context that might help fuel my next comment is I spent seven years running growth at a nonprofit um, that did international relief and development. But a lot of our work, when you talk about what we were good at, is we were really good at telling brilliant stories and connecting funders that had aligned mission, like intention and uh, desires with the missions that we supported. But ironically, what we also were good at was we were kind of like a mutual fund where we had 142 partners around the world that were actually implementing the work that we cultivated, curated, assessed, and funded basically through our organization. So we kind of acted as this mission-minded mutual fund. And I always described it as that. But it's interesting because I think when we decided, hey, we're not an international aid organization doing the work and comparing ourselves to others that manage the entire vertical process, meaning they fundraised and implemented the work. And we said, we're really, really good at connecting supporters to the stories uh, that they want to be a part of. And then also making sure we assess and minimize risk and do all of that. We actually got better at our jobs when we realized that that's what we were supposed to be focused on. We were a fundraising operation and we were really, really good at that. We actually got better. And so I've seen that in in a different light, but I wanted to bring that up because I think it was interesting that you said, what are you actually good at um, as the key question to ask as the first step? Absolutely. And I think it was Socrates that said, to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. And that's really what it comes down to. You have to know yourself, what you're good at, so you can partner with others who know themselves and what they're good at to really create this uh, this accretive magic where one plus one plus one equals five. Um, and, and that leads to better collaborations, better partnerships uh, among nonprofits, but also across sectors. For, for example, it's very encouraging. We've seen a number of partnerships pop up between nonprofits and and local governments uh, because governments recognize that there are organizations out there that are doing things, things that their constituents value better than they can. So let's reach out to those organizations and and bring them into the fold. And I think all of this really 
stems from the realization that the, the thorniest problems out there, you know, economic and social inequality, homelessness, healthcare, recidivism, you know, <laughs> pick one, they all require the proverbial village to tackle. And, and, and we're seeing more and more of those types of partnerships, collaborations, and, and even mergers and acquisitions, more permanent relationships between organizations pop up, especially now this year during the pandemic. There was a, uh, a study that was conducted by a firm uh, whose work we cite in the book called La Piana Consulting. And the finding was that in any given year, typically 1% of organizations say they're considering uh, mergers or more permanent partnerships with other organizations. This year, I think the condu- uh, survey was conducted a few months ago. This year, 23% of the respondents said they're considering those types of organizations. So uh, I think that just underscores you know, the need for these types of relationships and the value that they bring to all stakeholders. It definitely is a different mindset, though. And, and then, like being in a nonprofit, consulting with nonprofits, and you know, spending my my entire career in this sector, is that this idea of you know what you all call in the book? I think was you know a strategic restructuring or kind of just thinking through like how do we actually put the Legos we have that are essential and that we own, like the IP Legos we own, not the extra stuff. Combine that with other people's IP and create impact is a very, I think, a, a different mindset than one I've seen historically, at least just being around the industry. And and so how do you, how, I guess, as um, funders or as uh, advocates of kind of this new way of thinking, what is the path forward? Because we've kind of talked about the how and like what we would do to get there, but how as a sector would we need to shift the conversation to really unlock this opportunity at scale? Because it does seem like something that isn't, there's isolated use cases, but it's like, how do we actually present this as a, as a prominent way that organizations move forward rather than a um, kind of a rogue or contrarian way to move forward? Yeah, I, I would just uh, start with a, a mindset of anything's on the table. Um, a friend of mine who does consulting for governments likes to say, uh, you should think inside the box because you've got a vast reservoir of intellectual capital and people who are emotionally primed to want to help an organization right there within your four walls, within your leadership, within your staff, within the board. Um, Use those board meetings as venues to get creative and and don't just use them as opportunities to share what the latest financials look like. Uh, You know, we, we talk about how organizations should spend time at board meetings in three modes of governance, not just the fiduciary or the traffic cop mode, which is important. Absolutely. I mean, you are stewards of uh, other people's assets, and, and that is an important responsibility, no doubt. But the work we cite in the book says you also should spend equal time in strategic and generative mode, strategic being What's the overall strategy? What's our roadmap? You know, where are we going and how do we get there? And then generative, which is idea mode. That's where creativity shines. And it gives all people within the organization, including folks on your board, uh, who just want to have a, a spark of passion ignited in them. You know, it gives them a chance to think creatively about how we unlock sources of growth. How do we improve impact? And what's cool is that, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are exploring different legal structures beyond the traditional 
501c corporation to accomplish those missions. As we heard and observed during our research, sometimes being a hybrid company, a B Corp, or even a for-profit corporation can actually help an organization accomplish its mission. Uh, a tax status shouldn't define the good you can do in the world. And I think leaders within existing nonprofits, as well as those looking to start one, should really ask themselves, what is the right legal structure for what we're trying to do? There's been a phenomenal rise recently in the use of these hybrid structures. For example, an LLC subsidiary of a 501c nonprofit that allows that organization to get really creative and unlock uh, new sources of capital or potential partnerships or opportunities to improve their sustainability and impact. And I think that's really neat to see. Um, David, I want to, I want to hear your commentary here too, but Matthew or Matt, I think you bring up something really interesting is that sometimes we let structure determine strategy. Um, and that's something that our sector has dealt with for a while because of even the, the, uh, for lack of a better word, an analyst in our nonprofit sector have kind of judged people or judged nonprofits or placed them in order stack ranks based on, you know, overhead or program impact and fundraising. And some of the things you just mentioned are really interesting because how do you actually break out of those things? And I just, I kind of wanted to point that out because I think there's a nuance there where we do allow our structure and our those outside stakeholders that are basically putting grids on us and saying, oh, are you an A or a B or a plus or a star or a four star or whatever? So I'm curious your commentary on that too. But David, uh, I'd love for you to kind of share more from your perspective too. Well, I think Matt hit on a very, very important point and that's leadership. And you know, frankly, the, the world doesn't need another book on leadership, but um, we found that that was clearly number one, the people that we spoke with, you know, who, who are the people who were knocking the cover on the ball, uh, off the ball, and it really started with leadership. But I will say to you that I think uh, the transformation that you spoke about, how you get there, I think it's coming, and it's coming very, very quickly, and it's coming at us very quickly. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, you recall the old uh, story about the overhead myth, myth how nonprofit uh, uh, funders for many, many years, I want all my money to go into the program. I don't want to uh, pay for overhead. Well, that has been shattered, totally shattered, by changes in philosophy of grantors uh, in terms of, uh, as an example of trust-based grant making, where they recognized uh, that they're in partnership with the people that they're uh, providing grants to. It's sort of a, a resetting of the golden rule. Uh, you know, the old golden rule was those that have the gold rule to uh, we're in this together and how can we best uh, operate uh, and uh, on a long-term basis. And uh, trust-based grant making is becoming very, very commonplace um, in in many, many uh, foundations where they recognize that their job is to become deeply committed to a, a particular program, to provide capital to the program, uh, meaning unrestricted funding that can then be used for the organization to build a funding model that, st that stands the, the test of time. Um, that's one example. Um, where the old grant making is changing. Second is, uh, and we call this Wall Street for the, thir for the third sector. Um, there is a tsunami of capital that is coming into, into the industry because something like one third of all investing today uh, is 
can be called socially responsible investing, where people want a double return on their capital. I want to make a return, uh, get a return on my capital, but I also want to do good work. Now, there are lots of terms for this. They can be things like socially responsible investing, environmental, um, governmental investing, um, and there are different degrees. It can be, I'm going to avoid tobacco companies in my portfolio, or it can be, I'm going to specifically make investments based upon the impact and get paid back by the impact of what they're doing. Um, Something like $8.7 trillion in the United States uh, is is, uh, currently uh, going into these kinds of investments. And that's if 1% of investment dollars are dedicated to, to that uh, type of investing, that's, that's double the amount of charitable giving in the United States in any particular year. And what's the real, real important element here is what is the impact of, my, of what my capital is having? And that's forcing organizations to focus more and more on the impact of what they're doing. You know, in the old days, and frankly, technology is just helping with this, because in the old days, um, you know, you would have to uh, do double-blind studies, and they take years, and by the time you receive the information, it was probably out of date. Now what's happening with such things as social impact funding and social impact bonds, people are coming up with very simplistic ways of measuring the impact of where their dollars, what effect their dollars are having. Uh, again, I'll, we call these evaluation hacks. Just choose something simple and measure it. I'll give you an example. Um, there is a, uh, we looked at two anti-recidivism proje- uh, projects in the United States. One was a $30 million project in Boston, the biggest social uh, impact investment bond ever issued in the country. Uh, in order, and basically it was uh, designed to help people not to go back to jail after coming out of jail. Uh, and uh, in order to determine how the, whether the program was affected, they did a two-year double-blind study um, and, you know, it cost a lot of money. With a $30 million project, you can do that. We then looked at a program up in San Francisco, um, and it's called the, the Last Mile. It was an $800,000 social impact bond, uh, and they boiled down how they would measure uh, the results of the program very simply. They found that for, uh, if people uh, in, that were incarcerated spent an hour in classroom time, the number of hours, a certain number of hours, means that they didn't go back to jail. So the investors put up a certain amount of money uh, uh, on which they would be paid back based upon the efficacy of the program, how effective it was by measuring the impact, uh, by funders who would come in, uh, philanthropists would come in and say, okay, uh, we see that this is working. We're going to repay that debt uh, with a, a very attractive interest rate, by the way, but only when we know that it's really working. So these are the kinds of things, I don't want to go on too long, but these are the kinds of things that we're seeing that are really changing the industry and causing the people who are running nonprofits to think about what is my impact, how can I express what that impact is, and how can it be measured very, very quickly so I can attract this enormous amount of money. Yeah, I'm going to pull my soapbox over here because I'm not done uh, trampling on the overhead myth yet. You uh, you brought that up, so I'm going to... I'm going to riff on that for a while longer, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to hear your feedback on it. And and I think, too, like, I think giving our listeners uh, maybe talking points or dialogue discussion questions on how they can uh, address it. I think, I think the, like, 
the overhead myth has been well socialized, but I think there's sometimes the difficulty translating it internally to like having valid conversations. And then how does that then impact strategy? Because it still takes uh, more hold in conversations internally that I think it's probably worth. So what would you say to them, Matt? Yeah, it does. And, and, and there needs to be a bit of uh, truth telling and, uh, you know, speaking truth to power. And, and often that power, at least historically, has been perceived as funders. Um, like David said, they've got the gold, so they rule, right? Um, not necessarily. What we heard a lot from the leaders that we spoke with across the nonprofit sector, these are people at organizations as well as with funders, is that this trust-based philanthropy that David mentioned is really taking root. And that's a good thing. It's very positive because it, it really is just a simple reset of the notion that organizations, as opposed to funders, know best how to operate their business and address whatever unmet needs exist in their communities. And you know, ignoring that allows this overhead myth to fester. And and when we say overhead myth, just everybody, I think you said, knows what we're talking about. It's been well socialized. But essentially, it's it's the notion that money, grants, donations, even earned income should go directly to the mission without any regard for what it takes to deliver on that mission. In other words, it ignores overhead, which are the very real costs of things like rent, staff salaries and supplies, et cetera. And, and basically, these restricted funds limit what organizations can do. It ties their hands behind their back, and, and it contributes to what's been coined the nonprofit starvation cycle, which is the, the corollary to the overhead myth. And this system got so pervasive that we even came up with the metric, the overhead ratio that you know organizations brag about and, and, and uh, publishers of those lists know that you mentioned uh, like to put out and tout how 95 cents of every dollar at this organization goes straight to the mission. And the higher that percentage, it was thought the better the organization was doing. And, and when you think about it, you know, that's just crazy. It's, it's like going out for ice cream and offering to pay for the cone, but refusing to let the business owner factor in the cost of hiring the employee who scooped it for you or, or the rent on the space you're eating in or the, the cost of purchasing the ice cream and the cones and, Sorry, I have young kids and we go out for ice cream a lot. But you get the idea. The, uh, the overhead ratio really is a measure of scarcity. And so what we heard from just about everyone we spoke with is that the system is madness and it needs to be replaced. And the encouraging thing is that it is slowly but surely being supplanted by an approach that's based on trust and one that factors in the true cost to nonprofits of delivering their programs and services. And there, there are a lot of benefits to this. When the relationship between funders and organizations are viewed as co-equal partnerships, well, this, enc this encourages open communication on all issues, including problems and failures, which, frankly, are important to address early on. And many nonprofits still, to this day, fear admitting failure, whether it be in a program or something else, will hurt their reputations. But in fact, what we learned through our research is that the most successful organizations, they actually celebrate failure because it encourages prudent risk-taking and it creates an opportunity to learn. And that honesty and transparency with funders and other stakeholders, it actually burnishes the nonprofit's reputation. The analogy we make in the book is that nonprofits fortunate enough to be working with funders who provide unrestricted money for operations or capacity building, infrastructure, training, anything, they have the opportunity to use that capital as a bridge 
to develop sustainable organizations that connect people and programs rather than as a peer, which by its nature leaves you stranded at a certain point. And without trust, honesty, and transparency, you frankly run the very real risk of becoming what uh, one of our interviewees called, uh, it's a great term, a Franken nonprofit, which is an organization that's bent and twisted so much to meet funders' often competing guidelines that they lose their true identity. And they have 20 different programs that are all doing something a little bit different. Indeed. I've uh, run across a few of those in my history as well, and I think no one's happy about it. <laughs> Internally, externally, you know, the beneficiaries as well. So we definitely can look to avoid avoid that. We, I want to end on this. We don't have much time left together, and I've just greatly appreciated your insights and just the challenges that you're proposing to our listeners. And, and we've hinted a little bit that 2020 has obviously uh, put a spotlight on a lot of uh, funding models. It's also created a lot of strain and stress um, on organizations to kind of reinvent themselves to identify how they might continue to press forward on their impact. What, what is your take on the future of how some of the thinking that you're talking about is going to impact uh, organizations in 2021? There's a lot of mixed feelings on like where we're headed, the, the future of the sector, um, what needs to happen, how quickly can we execute that? 2020 definitely accelerated a lot of those conversations. Um, I know here at Virtuous, we have a mindset that generosity is resilient, but I'm curious what your perspective is as you look at the sectors um, through the lens of the smart nonprofit book uh, that you all wrote and what guidance um, you see ahead. Well, I can tell you that, as I mentioned, I, uh, I, entered into this process with a sense of frustration, and I leave it with a great sense of optimism. Um, why do I say that? Well, first of all, because everything that we learned in our research and the things we've talked about, such things as trust-based grant making, impact financing, um, better ways of, de of determining what your impact is, different relationships and collaborations, are really coming, to, really coming uh, on very, very strong in the industry. But then... The, uh, the pandemic comes along, and what happens? Nonprofits are forced to examine everything they do uh, and examine it in such a way that, you know, uh, things they've been doing for years and years and years and can no longer afford to do, and, and basically are taking very hard looks at their funding models, at what they do. And along the way, uh, they are also developing a tremendous sense of teamwork. I know the nonprofit boards I sit on, I have a much better understanding now of what they do and how they do it and how they can do it better than I did uh, this time last year. Um, and that's a sense of teamwork, I think, that is, is, is really going to, to be extremely effective uh, and, and not, not only because they've thought about what they do and better ways of doing it, but they're, bringing, they're getting rid of, jettisoning the old and bringing on some very new concepts that they start to bring on to weather the storm of the pandemic, but basically will essentially uh, survive long before the uh, pandemic with refined funding models and refined business models. Uh, so I see that as tremendous, this is a great time to be in part of a nonprofit. Uh, I'll give you, a, again, a quick example. I just wrote an article, it's called All Hands on Deck, and it was based upon uh, the sailboat that's uh, out in the 30 miles from port, uh, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and the skipper calls out, 
uh, a gale comes up and all hands on deck because we have to shorten sail and save the ship. Well, that group then jumps on. No one worries about what their particular job is. They worry about what the task is and what has to be done. Uh, and they, as a result, they come together as a very, very effective team. And believe me, when they get back to port, uh, to port and they start go back to racing in the bay, they win a lot more races because they, everyone knows their job. They have a great deal of, of trust in each other, uh, and they, they work as a very effective team. So, uh, so that, coupled with the new sources of financing and, and new, all the things we've spoken about, uh, make me wish I was uh, 30 years younger and going into the uh, nonprofit sector. I greatly appreciate yeah. the optimism, David. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree, and I share that sense of optimism. It, it would be hard to overstate the impact that the pandemic has had on nonprofits of all sizes, but particularly on the smaller organizations, the Main Street nonprofits we describe in much of our book. We've already seen lower revenues, both earned and fee-for-service, and in some levels of giving, as well as delays or the outright slashing of grants from federal, state, and local governments due to budget cuts and you add on the lost revenue from those canceled events like the galas and golf outings we talked about earlier, and the picture can begin to look pretty bleak. So out of necessity, many organizations have responded by furloughing or reducing staff levels and curtailing services, which is especially tough given the increased demand, uh, particularly in the social services sector. And let's face it, these are just the effects we're seeing now. Uh, we're not out of this thing just yet, and so we likely won't truly know for some time what the full impact of the pandemic will be on the nonprofit sector. But I do believe, as David mentioned, when we reflect on the moment, we will find some silver linings in all of this. And I say that because the nonprofit world ain't populated by a bunch of cynics. We, David and I have worked with, Noah, you have too, a number of people in the sector over the years and to a person, they're all optimists. These are folks in the make the world a better place business, and I'm betting they'll find a way to make the best of this. From an operational standpoint, many organizations have executed their own pandemic pivot. They've moved operations or programs online and begun to work more digitally, and you know that's not always ideal, but there are a lot of efficiencies and cost savings that can be gained from this approach. Uh, less papers, almost always a good thing. Um, and so what caused many of these behaviors to accelerate, that's unequivocally bad. I think we can all agree on that. The fact that it's prompted many nonprofits to strategically evaluate how they operate is and will certainly be a good thing in the long run. Well, David and Matt, I really appreciate your insights um, and just putting together kind of an alternative view on what the future holds for our industry uh, and those that are looking to map out their go forward strategies. So grateful for the commentary and just the opportunity to learn from you all and your research. Thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack 
just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the Responsive Fundraising Blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the Responsive Fundraising Playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is gonna be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. 